they probably knew it was significant at the time, but it's really through retrospect that history becomes history. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am so excited to be joined by Michael X. Wong, author of the novel Lost in the Long March. Not everything came to fruition. I, I think it's still important for writers when they're working on a first draft to um, give the novel space for it to surprise them as well. Michael X. Wang was born in Fengyang, a small coal mining city in China's Shangxi province. His short story collection, Further News of Defeat, won the 2021 Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Short Story Collection and was a finalist for the 2021 CLMP Firecracker Award for Fiction. Wang immigrated to the United States when he was six and has lived in 10 states and 15 cities. In 2010, he completed his Ph.D. in literature at Florida State University. Before that, he received his MFA in fiction at Purdue. Wong's work has appeared in the New England Review, Greensboro Review, Day One, and Juked, among others. He is currently an assistant professor of English and creative writing at Arkansas Tech University and lives in Russellville, Arkansas. Well, I'm really curious about your background because you grew up in Fengyang, a small coal mining city in a mountainous region in China. Uh, what I'd like to know is how did you get into storytelling? Like when did you discover your your love of stories and, and, and how did you become a writer? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I um, The uh, province that I was born in in China, Shanxi, and Fengyang is uh, a relatively small uh, city in that province, you know, it has a population of around 150,000, um, which is small for a Chinese city. Uh, it's one of the first cities to actually open up to the West in that region, which is interior China. And um, a lot of uh, missionaries from the United States uh, came and did missionary work uh, in Fenyang in the 1920s and 30s. Um, the city, uh, and you know, consequently, every time Finyang, like every time they make a map of China, they put Finyang on that map, even though it's not a really uh, remarkable city in any, in, in any other way. Um, but the state of um, Shanxi in China is uh, kind of known for a lot of writers being in the state. Um, some of China's most renowned writers and poets throughout history um, were from Shanxi. So, this, so the state has a kind of a history of that. Um, although nobody in my family 
were writers before me. Um, my father, he was a, a chemist. He was a physical chemist. Um, but, you know, he was the first person in his family to attend college. His um, his family and his grandparents and, you know, all his descendants basically were <clears throat> farmers in this really small, um, in this really small rural community called uh, uh, Sindu Chun. Du Chun is just a name of the, the the village and Chun means village in um, uh, in Chinese. Xin is new. So when the communists took over in 1949 um, and the population grew leaps and bounds, they had to kind of separate the individual uh, villages in a lot of different parts. So it was all one Du Chun. And then in the 60s, it became Xin Du Chun and Lao Du Chun. So new do village and old do village um but but yeah he was the first to attend college and then he attended the uh chinese academy of science in beijing and then he came over to the united states when i was six years old it is uh i think i've been kind of creative ever since i was very young um you know like a lot of asian parents they forced me to study music so i learned how to play the keyboard and the piano for a little bit when I was, you know, five or six years old. Um, and then as soon as I was able to sort of play a little bit on the piano, I, I started making music, really, really bad music. But I mean, I've been just kind of creative um, since I was young, you know, and during elementary school, I, I was writing this uh, like weird space opera-ish thing when I was in um, like fourth or fifth grade. It was just basically in my free time, I would just scribble down on a random sheet of loose leaf, um, whatever was, was influencing me at the time, like Star Wars or whatever, you know, whatever kind of science fiction. Um, but it, you know, I didn't consider writing to be a career until, uh, until college, until my first year of college, freshman year. And, it was um, when I read uh, Chekhov that I really started taking writing seriously. Chekhov was a huge influence. I loved his short stories. Um, and he, you know, I've always been a fan of short stories before that. I read Maupassant and I read, you know, Roald Dahl and Raymond Carver. Um, I loved stories with surprise endings, uh, you know, um, O. Henry. But it wasn't until I read um, Chekhov where I kind of, saw that stories were not just about surprise endings and it can go, um, it can have effects that are much greater than that and much more meaningful. Uh, and then um, I was pre-med in college in the beginning uh, and the way in which I told my parents that I was pursuing writing was I was also pursuing a pre-med degree, but during my junior year, I sort of just stopped being pre-med and just went full-time into writing. Uh, they didn't really like it at first, but um, eh, it was a choice that I ultimately made. So <laughs> that's basically my journey in becoming a writer. And uh, were there some some bumps early on where you thought maybe you made a wrong choice? Oh, yeah. Many, many moments. Um, so after college, I applied to... MFA programs. And um, the first time I applied, I got rejected by all of them. <laughs> um, I think I, I wrote a really bad uh, personal statement 
so that was, you know, that was really heartbreaking. And then I spent a year just working random jobs. Um, and then I applied the following year and I got accepted. Um, and I ultimately went to my program at Purdue. Um, and the MFA program at Purdue, it was really great. But for the first year and a half or so, um, it, it's it just, I just didn't feel like there was just so much I still had to learn, I felt. And I kind of like to think of learning how to write as climbing a series of plateaus. And just getting into my MFA, I just, and hearing the comments from the feedback during workshops, um, it dawned on me that I still had to climb a whole lot more plateaus in order to, um, you know, have my writing reach a state in which it was publishable. So um, that was just an eye-opening experience. It, it kind of made me very down on my writing for the first year and a half. Um, but by the second half of my second year and by the third year of my MFA, I felt like I was, um, I, I felt like I had, you know, had some epiphanies about my writing and I was producing work that was better and nearly to the point of getting uh, published. And I did publish a few pieces a couple early on. Uh, and then uh, after that, I decided to pursue a PhD in creative writing because I also enjoyed teaching creative writing as well. So I went to Florida State University and I started getting a PhD. Um, it also had, had the added benefit of allowing me to uh, have more time to work on my novel. And I began Lost in a Long March in my last two years at Florida State University. Um, so, it, it, you know, I, I like to think of just the entire creative field, writing, um, fiction, poetry, as being just a privilege, right? Um, we are kind of living off of the fat of the land, and um, it, it's it's really a privilege that um, we're able to kind of uh, uh, do writing. And um, so, 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 yeah, uh, I did that um, <clears throat> with the novel itself. I finished in a first draft after I, uh, in my final year of my PhD, and there were some parts of it that were good, but uh, it was very apparent that I needed to rewrite and revise many parts of it. I queried a couple agents. They said some good things, but ultimately they passed on it. And, um, you know, I, I kind of set it aside for a little while, working on other stuff, working on my story collection. Um, and I would come back to it every once in a while, you know, every year I would work on it for a couple months. And um, it's just, you know, when I see it with a fresh new set of eyes, I feel I, I can see the flaws in it and I can see what's working really well and make the, the aspects that are working well better and, um, you know, rewrite the flawed parts. So I would say probably I had written 800 pages of the novel, roughly, you know, something along the lines of 250,000 words. Um, and ultimately, the novel ended up being 100,000 words. So um, it was definitely a journey indeed. Well, it's it's very interesting to hear you tell that that whole story all the way back to your first space opera, um, to where you are now. <laughs> And, um, and, you know, in a way it's, it's validating for other writers to just be like, okay, this is just how, it, how it works. And, and, uh, so, you know, I kind of hate to ask authors to, to relive some of that, but it is really interesting 
to hear um, the journey that, that you said it, it is and, and how to get to where, where you want to be. Um, let's, let's talk about the history. Um, so the book is The Lost Long March. Um, did you always know that you wanted to write about Mao's Long March? And, and how did you get interested? And, and why did you decide to write about that? Uh, that's a great question. I um, I was also like I was always interested in that part of history. Um, I mean, I was also interested in just history in general. Um, in my story collection, Further News of Defeat, many of those stories are historical in nature. Um, the title story deals with um, the uh, Japanese invasion during World War II of this small village, and um, the uh, the first story, A Minor Revolution, talks about the Tiananmen Square massacre. So. I've always been interested in kind of um, history and just what the what the average person goes through during um, a momentous time, uh, because for them, you know, they when we look back on a very impactful historical event, we think, "Wow, you know, that must have been such an event to live through." But I think for the people um, living through it, it was just Tuesday, <laughs> and they. Um, they probably knew it was significant at the time, but it's really through retrospect that history becomes history. Um, with the Long March in particular, um, I, I was listening to some sort of old uh, communist propaganda um, audio uh, audio shows, you know, back in the 19. 19- 70s um and you know my parents-in-law they they brought them and i was fascinated by just the the adventure radio shows of that time um, broadcasted in china uh just before and during um the time in which mao was you know he was either uh gonna die very soon or just immediately after his death and that always fascinated me and they um those radio shows, they really kind of uh, made that time during history, the Long March, this kind of heroic event and whatnot. And I knew a lot of the stuff was not true. It, it, you know, it was propaganda, more or less. Uh, but um, so that made me investigate what actually was going on and just um, how China became the country that it is today. I, I think um, I really wanted to know um, because it impacted my parents, it impacted my grandparents, and it ultimately led me to where I am today. So um, it's really this uh, journey of wanting to know about my past, my parents' past, and how I got so lucky to come to the United States and be able to kind of pursue what I love that got me started writing about the Long March and uh, that's that's the origins, more or less. And I'm curious about who were the people on the Long March? Who were some of the people in the early Communist Party? And I was particularly, I was struck by a line uh, which you write, nearly all the soldiers had been bandits or prisoners, and they cared about the communist ideals about as much as they did their body odor. Um, so can you, can you talk about the, the people that were a part of that early um, communist party in China? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the communist party initially was established by intellectuals, um, you know, people who went to the uh, Wampoa military academy in Nanjing. 
Um, and it was just uh, this um, this counter to the Nationalist Party led by uh, Chiang Kai-shek. Um, you know, they were one of China's closest neighbors is Russia, the USSR, and there was uh, and communism was impacting uh, European countries, Asian countries, and China during that time, um, without exception. You know, there is. Uh, there was a period of time in which um, Spain would have been a communist country, could have been a communist country, Italy, Germany, France. Uh, in some ways, World War II is about, um, you know, uh, nationalism versus communism, in a sense. Um, so uh, the early Communist Party in China started with these intellectuals, um, and they wanted to recreate the sort of... Um, workers uprising that that they saw in the USSR in Russia but uh China is not industrialized China does not have so many workers um does not have so many industry so um the early communist uh party in China began when um they had to flee um from the merger uh from the major um cities like Nanjing Shanghai because once um once Sun Yat-sen died in China, he was like the grandfather of modern China. Once he died, um, he was the balancing force between the communists and the nationalists. He allowed um, a seat for both of them in Chinese politics. But once he died, uh, Chiang Kai-shek took power and he, he massacred all of the communist intellectuals, as many as he could find. He rounded them up and he killed them in uh, major Chinese cities. So the remaining remnants of the Communist Party, they had to retreat to the countryside where everything was hidden, um, where you know the mountainous terrain made it difficult for Chiang Kai-shek and the National Party to pursue them. And um, in effect, uh, the Communist Party, uh, that, that ultimately benefited the Communist Party because they took the uh, communist ideologies to the countryside, to um, farmers who were um, at the time uh, incredibly taxed, incredibly overburdened. Um, these landlords, these wealthy uh, businessmen and farmers, um, they, uh, they exploited the, the, the people a great deal. And uh, many people were uh, homeless, you know, many families, they lost their land. They had to sell during a uh, really bad harvest to the landlord. And um, so you have these uh, roaming bands of criminals just, just going around the countryside. And it wasn't safe to travel on the Chinese roads in the more rural areas because there were so many poor people and um, so many gangs. Um, every city uh, had like a local sort of warlord that that protected the city, um, but once you're out of the city, once you're on the roads, these these kind of roaming bands of criminals, um, um, they they were able to kind of uh, steal you know shipments, steal wagons, and then live off of that. Um, so the earliest communist party really took shape just as a home. You know, if if you are unwanted, if you are criminals, if you don't have anywhere else to go and live, um, the early Communist Party in uh, Ironwell Mountain took all of these people in. And it was really a 
motley crew of just um, um, a bunch of unwanted hooligans. And they didn't know the communist ideals. I mean, it sounded good. Everyone uh, is equal. You know, we work for a greater cause and whatnot. Um, but, you know, a lot of gangs, right? They have the same mindset. You know, there's a gang leader, but once they um, overtake a like once they overtake a wagon, the spoils will be divided kind of evenly. So, so yeah. And um, the early communist party, they were able to kind of subsist by planting opium crops um, in Jiangxi province and sell um, opium, which is, uh, which was illegal. Um, They were kind of this criminal, um, idealistic criminal drug traders um, in the 1920s and 30s. And uh, Chiang Kai-shek, he wanted to exterminate the communists because, you know, rightly so, he thought them as the biggest threat to his power, to his domain. He tried invading um, Jiangxi province uh, four times, well, five times, the last time being successful, called the encirclement campaigns. And every time he didn't know the landscape, he was kind of beaten back by these Guerrillas, and it wasn't until the fifth encirclement campaign, when he uh, were when he was building these uh, pillboxes and these forts, um, you know, slowly, methodically building these forts closer and closer to the communist kind of strongholds, that he was able to secure a victory and sent the communist party um, fleeing, you know, known as this long march. Wow, that's really fascinating, and I can see how it's ripe for a historical novel. Um, so we, you know, you've gone through this history, but you know, you are writing fiction. So can you tell me a little bit about your main characters, Ping and Yang? Um, how did they come about? Were they always, you know, were they part of the early drafts? How did they become developed, and and what roles do they play in the story? Yeah, uh, Ping and Jung, they were always part of the um, early draft of the story for some reason. And I'm not not sure if, you know, it's justified. Ultimately, the reader can decide. I saw like, I saw the story as um, a love story, at least in the first 50, 60 pages, part one. So that was the kind of the yearning, you know, um, that I wanted to work with uh, besides the history. but then part two, um, the story shifted in point of view to Jung. And um, it really is about kind of her interactions with the communist ideals. And there are, she encounters a lot of contradictions between what she sees, what she experiences, um, and what the communist ideals tell her. Um, she's not an incredibly literate person either. She only listens to what the party leaders tell her and she believes in it wholeheartedly, but she doesn't truly understand what she believes in. And she embodies a lot of um, superstition inside her as well. Um, well, even today, there's a lot of uh, superstition in China. Um, you know, this belief in old man in the sky, this kind of strange deity that is poorly described, poorly defined controlling people's ways, showing people's, you know, how how to live their destinies. So there was that sort of, she still embodies that as she is trying to 
understand the communist ideals. Ping, on the other hand, Ping is just enamored with her. Um, he uh, he's an orphan. He doesn't. He never knew his parents. For Ping, the Communist Party is just this surrogate family, and um, he latches onto Young. He hopes to understand better understand the communist ideals in order to kind of win her affection um so that's you know i i I always figured um the two main characters would be the two of them but the third character hai wu um he he was a kind of a discovery through the writing process and um he becomes increasingly important as the um as the novel progresses but um he was one of those interesting surprises that ultimately, I think, benefited the writing of the novel. Hi, listeners. This is Colin Mustful, the host of the podcast and the founder and editor of History Through Fiction. I just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about my favorite History Through Fiction novel, It's called The King's Anatomist, The Journey of Andreas Vesalius by Ron Blumenfeld. The novel tells the story of the life, times, and mysterious death of Andreas Vesalius, who's also known as the father of human anatomy. Using a fictional best friend named Jan Vandenbosch, the author does a fantastic job of sharing some really fascinating scientific, artistic, and medical advancements of the European Renaissance all while developing a realistic and emotional tale of grief and platonic love. On top of that, there's a twist at the end, an engaging little mystery that unfolds. The author himself is a physician, and I learned so much from this novel while also caught up in a great story. I hope you'll consider reading it, and that's why, right now, you can get a copy direct through our online store at $5 off the retail price. Just go to historythroughfiction.com store and use the code PODCAST at checkout. That's code PODCAST at checkout. Thank you, and now please enjoy the rest of the interview. Well, can you go a little bit deeper into that process? Um, I'm curious, there is so much history here. Um, did did it start with the idea of these characters or did it start with you just researching the history? And I, I guess you, you've already talked a little bit about your short stories that, that, that kind of developed into this longer novel, but how, how do you mix those elements of history and fiction and, you know, where do you start? Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. I'm not, you know, I think different stories start um, in different ways for me. Um, with the long march, it was through those radio shows, and I knew maybe I wanted to write about this time, but um, uh, I didn't know um, exactly if I wanted to write about it. So I did some more research. I read some uh, firsthand accounts of. Um, you know, people who were um, there uh, in the foundation of the Communist Party. There was this really great book um, by Edgar Snow called, um, what was that book called again? Uh, Red Star Over China. And um, uh, it 
it wasn't exactly uh, during this time that he was writing about, but he was writing about the Communist Party when they were uh, in Yan'an, when they had finished the Long March, and, uh, Long March and had reestablished their base in northern China. Um, but he um, wrote this great kind of firsthand book. He was the only or one of the few only people invited into the uh, communist compound at the, at, at the time. Um, and World War II was still um, happening. And, um, you know, um, the revolution um, was far from over. And, and his book was great. Um, he gave a really kind of positive account of the Communist Party at that time. Um, and it, it kind of showcased the spirit of the people, at least in those early days. Um, and they really needed to work together. It, they they really needed to kind of bond um, and to believe in what they were um, fighting for. Um, the Communist Party, it wasn't until, uh, you know, the 1950s when they actually had control of China um, that it kind of degenerated through a lot of failed policies. Um, so his book was really eye-opening and um, his depiction of the people in the Communist Party, I thought were wonderful. And I used that as sort of um, the basis for uh, the main characters, um, Yong and Ping. Um, but a lot of it comes through craft as well. Um, during a novel writing class, I learned from one of my teachers, um, Patricia Henley, who wrote this really great um, historical novel called Hummingbird House. But she was uh, telling us that uh, one good way of making your character interesting is by giving them a particular skill, you know, a special skill, right? So Ping is a gunsmith. That's his kind of defining skill. And um, Yong, she is a great marksman. She's the best um, shot in in the platoon. So, um, you know, once I I had those kind of things in the back of my mind, I started writing it just to see where it goes, where it went. Um, I had to rewrite the opening. Uh, well, I rewrote I rewrote the opening many many times, but um, um, I had to rewrite it like completely three times in order to just to get the voice and the tone right. Um, my writing tends to be uh, a little bit cartoony, maybe a touch on the light handed side, and um, it's tough to kind of balance that with history and with, um, uh, you know, the gravity of what was going on at that time. So um, it took a lot of rewrites, but I was finally able to, you know, inhabit the characters um, and the story to a degree that I thought was acceptable. Um, and then um, after I had the tone down um, and maybe 20 pages or so that I thought was working pretty well, I started planning out uh, meticulously what I wanted to to uh, write, and um, not everything came to fruition. I, I think it's still important for writers when they're working on a first draft to um, give the novel space for it to surprise them as well. But um, yeah, um, once I have the voice of a novel of a story down, I I tend to be a meticulous plotter. Um, because it gives me a sense of direction in terms of what's going to happen next. And sentence by sentence, I can focus on the line level work. I can focus on the telling details. I can focus on dialogue and um, 
prose and that kind of thing. So, um, and I'm constantly kind of writing, even when I'm not writing. I'm thinking about the novel when I'm taking a shower, when I'm taking a walk, when I'm cooking, doing dishes. So um, that's kind of what my writing process is like. Yeah, thanks for, for sharing that. It's really interesting. I, I love that advice about give your character a particular skill. Um, it's also interesting to hear you say that, you know, you worked on those first 20 pages and, and reworked them until you found that tone and that voice. And that uh, sounds like a just a great um, idea uh, so that you don't, you know, fall straight into your novel and write 100,000 words that have to be completely rewritten. So I, I wonder why why historical fiction? Because the, 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 there is so much history there. Um, why did you decide to tell the story through fiction? And um, what what do you want readers to to take away? Do you want the, do you do you want to kind of get rid of some misconceptions about Chinese history, um, or do you want them to connect with the characters? What what exactly do you think readers can take away from this? I think um, the benefits of fiction is that you are sharing an experience um, and the reader can sort of connect with it in many different ways. Um, on, on some level, I do hope that they have a different view of China and of Chinese history. I, I, I think um, a lot of times when you know, um, a modern Western audience think about China and they don't know much about it, maybe a couple of things come to their mind, like the Cultural Revolution or uh, the Tiananmen Square massacre. And um, for a lot of countries too, they only know these, these cultural touchstones and um, they don't fully understand it either. And, and usually these cultural touchstones they are they are negative, right? Um, if uh, if you learn about China and you learn about the Cultural Revolution, you, you know, or the Great Leap Forward, or these failed policies, you're like, wow, that I can't imagine what people were were going through. I can't imagine um, a country being so 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 bad, so poor. And um, well, a lot of that is true. I think it it also gives the country an unfair and incomplete. Um, characterization. You can you can think of um, conversely, right? If if everything that another country knows about the United States is the civil rights movement, is the Civil War, and how the United States has embraced slavery, right? You know, longer than most other Western countries, then that colors the 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 other people's perception of the United States a great deal. And they think, you know, why, like, why did you let that happen? Why can, you know, you know, what poor country can let that happen? But there's so much more to that as well. There's so much more to the United States than that. Although um, the Civil War and um, um, the United States' relationship with race is, is a huge kind of defining feature of the United States as well. Um, but it's, it's an incomplete one. So I hope um, with... Uh, Lost in a long march, people understand just the cultural context and the situations around everyday people uh, before and after the Cultural Revolution, and just um, why that was taking place, and just see people living their everyday lives in a sense, um, and not just during times of very 
extreme things happening. So I think that's one part of it. Um, I think making a fiction uh, gives me the benefit of a doubt in terms of I can make some stuff up as well. Um, there is, in terms of females being in the Chinese Communist Army, there's kind of spotty records. Um, there was an all-female platoon and an all-female unit, um, but many units didn't have female soldiers either. So um, the situation that Ping and Jung were in, it would be slightly atypical, although not impossible to believe. So, you know, that kind of stuff, um, uh, when I'm writing it through fiction, I feel like I have greater freedom to do. Well, I think that's just fantastic um, for you to to create something like this and give give people a fuller picture of Chinese history. And I also love what you said about having the the benefit of doubt uh, in, in in order to you know while using fiction. So I wonder uh, what are you working on now? What's next for you? I'm uh, working on a couple of other projects. I've just completed a first draft of a novel um, called The Red Synthetic Utopia of the Mind. And it, you know, it's a mouthful um, and it deviates from historical fiction. It's more um, speculative fiction. The novel is about this uh, video game prodigy, um, Harriet Chu. Uh, she comes to the United States on a kind of video game visa and she works for, a, for an artificial intelligence corporation um, and they merge her with this alien um, found in the depths of binary coding and uh, once she merges with this alien um, the world kind of does a 180 um, China and the United States they kind of switch roles um, the United States becomes this uh, third world country um, very divided by its politics and, um, you know, and a second civil war is happening and China becomes this kind of idealized communist society um, that is uh, doing really well and um, uh, taking care of the environment and everything. So, so that novel, I just finished a first draft. I'm also in um, the planning stages of working on this other project called um, Jeff Bezos is the first emperor of China. And it's just as kind of kooky as it sounds. Basically, in that novel, uh, Jeff Bezos, it's 30 years in the, in the future. Amazon has grown, uh, you know, 20 times as more powerful as it is right right now. And Jeff Bezos, he's, he's nearing 90 years old. He has his mind on living forever. He uh, develops um, time traveling technology and he goes back to China well, he makes himself Asian, and then he goes back to he goes back in time to China, and um, he searches for the uh, elixir of immortality. Uh, and um, basically, the novel kind of parallels corporations and the corrupt corporate kind of society environment that we are living in right now, with um, the uh, corrupt Chinese bureaucracy from. Uh, many millennia ago. So those are the two projects I'm currently working on. Hopefully they both go somewhere. Well, they, they sound fantastic and unfortunately not, not all that hard to imagine, to be honest. 
Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, this has been a really great conversation, and congratulations on on uh, your novel and and all your awards and and whatever is coming next. I'm sure it'll be great. Thank you so much, Colin. It's uh, wonderful to talk with you and to be a part of history through fiction. I'm so happy to be here.